Well, a, a few weeks ago, Ryan and I were talking about um, music and upcoming texts and the Good Friday service we have and uh, just trying to think about some songs to, to put together. And, and we we're talking about Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, which is my text this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can open there to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It speaks about heaven. And, and I told Ryan, I said, wouldn't it be great if we sang some songs about heaven? And so we got to thinking a little bit, and, and we had some struggles really trying to find some songs talking about, about heaven. So we pulled out our hymnal and uh, found the section where the, the heaven songs are and, and found out most of them are, are kind of a little bit dated. And, um, you know, so aren't very much sung today. And so we searched a bit more. We thought about modern day songs and and having thought a little bit, we're really struggling to try to come up with a, a lot of songs. Um, and, and I think that it's really because not many songs are written about heaven today. Though, Ryan, you did a great job of finding some songs about, about heaven. Uh, a lot of those are just the choruses in Revelation. And, and maybe that is even right and appropriate. So I'm thinking about it now. Is it what is heaven? It's filled with the praise of a lamb as opposed to some schmaltzy feeling about what we will experience while we're there. It's all about Christ. So maybe, maybe there is a biblical balance to that. Um, but I, I, I think in, in general, people today aren't, aren't writing or singing much about, about heaven. Um, now, that's certainly hyperbole. Certainly there are songs, and Ryan found some today. Um, I don't think much being written about heaven. Now... There are some books written about heaven. Randy Alcorn's book, I think we have in our library, is a great book on heaven. It's the best book I've read on heaven. Uh, but there are a lot of these, I went to heaven in back books, and normally that's, that's not true because what they say is just not true about, about heaven. Um, but there's not much being written about heaven nowadays. Uh, what, what's being said is mostly in the minor key. It's not emphasis. I, and John Piper, I think, I think, pinned it very well when he said this. He says... I don't know your backgrounds. He's speaking here to a crowd. I don't know what the crowd was. But he says, I don't know your health condition right now. I don't know your relationships you have right now. You've all tasted some suffering, but mainly probably we in America know suffering only by watching it. And he talked about some disaster hits and we can get on the Internet and see the, see the screens or see the pictures or see the, the videos. But we normally just watch suffering. And he said this, we live in a Disneyland compared with the rest of the world. America is a place of one mammoth luxury. I, I think it's right on because in America, what we call poverty in other nations actually is called riches. And in America, what little we know about persecution, actually other countries just say, well, they're just calling you a name. In America, we know little about hardships. What we call hardships, others might consider just normal living. In America, all of us, I think there's not a one of us here who doesn't have electricity, indoor plumbing, a washing machine, an oven, probably a dishwasher. But for the vast majority of people in the world, to have all those things, it's rare. Except in America and maybe Europe and some other places, Australia. But for many people, that is just not the case. And we live in such pleasure and ease today that our longing for heaven is so small. Contrast that with the longings of the black slaves in America. Life was horrible, absolutely miserable for them. 
So they looked for the coming day when they would enjoy the pleasures of heaven rather than the sufferings of earth. One writer said this way, Negro spirituals, clear forerunners to the gospel music, were originally known as corn ditties. And they were sung after working hours outside the plantation prairie house. And listen to what, what this one writer said. I'm not sure if this is totally true, but it's, it catches the spirit of what I'm saying today. The spirituals fell roughly into two types. Those which worshipped God and looked forward to heaven and those which described their working conditions usually in a religious context. In other words, half the religious spirituals written about heaven. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. What are they talking about? They're talking about over the River Jordan, past death, I'm going to go home to where I belong in heaven. He's talking about Christ coming and taking him home. And we in America know so little about the suffering. We know so little about longing for a better place that these songs don't, don't hit us so much. We have it pretty good. I remember John MacArthur telling the story. I tried to find this on the internet. I couldn't. Maybe it was in some chapel sometime when he was just talking off the cuff. But he told the story about uh, preaching in the Soviet Union to some pastors over there. And uh, he, you know, droned on for days and days like, like he could, right? Just teaching through the Bible and going from passage to passage. And I don't know what he taught, but I'm sure he's teaching something about the Bible, something about God, something about Christ or salvation or leadership or preaching and going on and on. And um, on several days into it, there was one of the pastors raised his hand and said, so when are we going to get to the good stuff? <laughs> I was like, I thought this was pretty good. And uh, he said, well, what, what, what do you mean? And he said, I mean the stuff about heaven. Because those in Russia were so persecuted, had so difficult a time that they longed for heaven. That was the good stuff. And so I, I, I tell that story just to illustrate how little we think about heaven. Well, our text brings us there. It's going to force us to think about heaven this morning. Maybe in a little bit different perspective than you, you think about heaven generally. But we're just going to let the text drive the angle that we need to take about heaven. I, I did look, um, just look on a concordance. The, the word heaven occurs over 650 times in the Bible. So there's lots of, I'm not going to be exhaustive today in any sense, but I'm just going to let, let Paul's description of heaven slant the angle that we talk about it today. Because every text has got a little bit different angle on it, and we're going to talk about it here. So here, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, these words are, are really in contrast to the words we looked at last week in verse 19, that very last phrase there where it says, the whole verse 19, he's talking about these, these people who are walking in a wrong way, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. And here it is. They set their minds on earthly things. But on the contrast, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. <clears throat> I.e., we ought to set our minds on heavenly things. The title of my message this morning, rather than those who set their minds on earthly things, the title of my message this morning is set your minds on heavenly things. 
And even pulling up more of the context just to catch that again from last week, follow the right example. Verse 17, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. What's the pattern of Paul? The pattern of Paul is to realize that my citizenship is in heaven and that's what I'm living for. So follow my pattern. Don't follow the pattern of those whose mind is set on earthly things. Set your minds on heavenly things. This is a biblical command taken right from Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above and not on things that are on earth. Let us be heavenly minded. Here's my first point. Our home is in heaven. First part of verse 20. It's just right there. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now these words would have been particularly helpful for those in Philippi because although Philippi was several hundred miles from Rome, uh, Philippi was a, a leading city in Macedonia, kind of a hub and a Roman colony. So, for the most part, they adopted Roman dress, Roman customs, Roman law, Roman language. And you can see that it flushed itself out in, in the Scriptures. You remember when, what took place in Philippi when Paul came into that city? Acts 16 is the story. When Paul came the first time, there, there was a disturbance that, that happened because Paul cast this demon out of the slave girl who was able to tell the future and her owners were, were pretty upset at that because their opportunity for profit was, was lost. And so they seized Paul physically. They dragged him physically into the marketplace before the authorities. And then they slandered them. But listen to these words. They said this, These men are throwing our city into confusion be, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, for we are Romans. So, so they're in Philippi, but they're Romans. And these Jewish people are, are disturbing us. They can't talk like that because we're Romans. We're not going to be able to follow those things. But how could these people from Philippi say that we're Romans? Romans hundreds of miles away. Well, because Philippi was a Roman colony and they had every right to be called Romans. Every bit as much as those citizens of Hawaii have right to be called Americans. And as the narrative progresses through the book of Acts, you can see the implications of this. Talking about this, this whole Roman citizenry was, was, was keen on their minds. It means they followed Roman law. They, they did things according to Roman rule. Anyway, these chief magistrates heard their case, ordered them to be beaten with rods, thrown into prison, struck them with many blows, and threw them into prison. That's what the text says. And I know you know the story. I've told it several times. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians. They're, they're there in prison and they're singing hymns of praise to God. The Philippian jailer's watching. Those, those guys are some strange dudes. How with, with bruises on their body they can sing praise to God. The earthquake happens, opens up the jail. The prisoners could have escaped, but they didn't. And the, the jailer then said, what must I do to be saved? The answer came, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And he did that very night. And I think what they did is they went to the, the jailer's home, washed up, baptized him and his household, then came back to the jail. Because it says the next day the magistrates came and told the policemen, release these men. And we can only surmise that the policemen had done some investigation through the night, tried to figure out, okay, what, why exactly are these guys here? Uh, they're here on trumped up charges. They should be released. But Paul refused. And listen to why he refused. He says, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans... They've thrown us into prison. Now they're sending us away secretly. No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring themselves out. And the policemen reported, when the policemen reported these words to the chief priests and magistrates, they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. They thought they were just Jews. 
But Paul, of course, was a, a Roman Jew with all the rights and privileges that the Roman state afforded him. And they were afraid because Roman rule was the custom in Philippi. And, and in Rome, you would not ever beat a Roman without trial. And so they were scared maybe of having some repercussions come from Rome about how poorly they were managing. Also, a similar thing happened in Jerusalem. Remember when, when, when Paul was there, he was preaching and the, the centurion was about to whip him. And he said, is it, is it lawful to whip a Roman? He says, I didn't know you were a Roman. He says, yes. The guy says, I bought my citizenship. So I've been a citizen since birth. And so just even, even right there, there's another appeal to Rome. So those in Philippi knew what it is like to be citizens, catch this, of a faraway place. They lived in Philippi, living in a Roman colony. They were citizens of Rome. That's exactly the parallel here in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. The, the comparison here, though, is that, that we are on earth, but our true citizenship lies in heaven Yes, we're on earth. Yes, we, we live as earth. Yes, we are earthly citizens. But living as followers of Christ, we're citizens of heaven. In some sense, we have dual citizenship. We're citizens of America. And for those of us who've trusted in Christ, we're citizens of heaven as well. Now, in preparation for a message this morning, I was listening to a, a message of a friend of mine from seminary years who actually went and has spent his uh, ministerial years in uh, <clears throat> a seminary in, in Kiev, Ukraine. I think he's been there maybe 15 years or so. And he was explaining the tension that his oldest son has experienced, right? When they initially left the United States for Ukraine, he was old enough to have some friends and to know what America was about and didn't really want to leave that because thinking this was his home. And initially went through some growing pains, remembering his friends back home, remembering what they were like. But after a few years, he came accustomed to his home in Kiev and had some friends there and became accustomed to, to life there. And, and, and whenever he comes back now to America on furlough or whatever, he feels like he's in a different place. And he's, he's kind of torn. And in some sense, he's got like dual citizenship. He's maybe not officially a citizen, but he lives in Kiev and he, he lives in America. And he's just, he's just torn be, between the two. And in some regards, that's like our situation. We are citizens upon the earth. We ought to submit to our governing authorities. Romans 13.1 Every person is to be subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority established except from established by God. Those which exist are established by God. But when it comes to our ultimate citizenship, heaven is where we are. And if that's where our citizenship is, we ought to live as if that's the case. We ought to live as if heaven is our home, right? One of the Negro spiritual songs says, this world is not my home. I'm just uh, passing through. That's the implication. If our citizenship is in heaven, we're just passing through here on our way home because heaven is our home and our minds ought to be on our, our homeland. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the writer addresses the Hebrews. says, says, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. We've been called this heavenly calling. And in Hebrews 11, the author writes about Abraham and Sarah who left their homeland seeking another. You remember when God called them out of Ur the Chaldeans and said, go to the land which I will show you and I'll make you fruitful and I will bless you. Genesis 12. And during their days upon the earth, it says they were strangers and exiles. Hebrews 11, verse 13. And they were looking for a country which was not their own. Hebrews 11, verse 14. And then in verse 15, he says this, 
And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return, right? They're looking for this country that is not their own. And he says, listen, if they were just looking for an earthly country, they could have gone back to Ur the Chaldees. But they were looking for a heavenly country, even Abraham and Sarah. And that's how he concludes Hebrews 11:16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Even Abraham and Sarah knew that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. In fact, you know, everyone knows this. Um, we had some miles. We had, to, we had an opportunity to redeem, and so we redeemed for Time Magazine. Uh, I haven't read a lot of these, but I just happened to open this yesterday and uh, saw here on page 10 and 11 this beautiful spread of these what's called cherry blossoms. Now, I don't, I don't know all the, the background of this or, or what, but I think it's in uh, Japan that there's this short period of time where these cherry blossoms flower bright, white, beautiful. Uh, I went online, printed so They had a bunch of pictures of this online. You got one in your children's notes, children. But, but listen to what Time Magazine, not exactly a bastion for biblical truth, all right? Pretty, pretty secular writing. Listen to what they say. It says this, After an especially harsh winter, clouds of cherry blossoms burst from trees in Tokyo on March 31st. In Japan, the brevity of the one to two week blossom season has sometimes served as a symbolic reminder that human life is brief as well. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. The psalm says exactly the same thing. Psalm 103 as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. And the wind passes over it and its place knows it no more. The big question is this. Is your citizenship in heaven? Or are your eggs in the earthly basket? Now, in Philippians 3, Paul's making this contrast. There are those who are earthly minded, verse 19, and citizenship is not in heaven. And then those heavenly minded, the ones in verse 20, and our citizenship is in heaven. So I, I say, where's your citizenship? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? I, I did a little research trying to think about, okay, citizenship. Let's just, let's just, let's just take heaven from the citizenship realm. What, what does it take to become a U.S. citizen? So, according to the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. In other words, if you're born in the United States, if you're subject to the government, you're a citizen. Includes most of us. Not all of us. Most of us. And so likewise, I find it interesting, right? The kingdom of heaven, there is this born into the kingdom discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus. You remember he came to Jesus by night and Jesus said, unless you're born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Or more literally, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You only enter the kingdom of God if you've participated in this heavenly birth. God comes into your life, radically changes you, regenerates you, makes you a, a heavenly creature now rather than an earthly creature. We need to be born into heaven so the reality, all of us enter the kingdom of heaven by being born the first time on earth and then being born again to our heavenly citizenship. In other words, not by right 
that we come into heaven, but it's by immigration. So, so I, I, did, I did some more research about um, but how does a foreigner become a citizen of the United States? Because the uh, the parallels there are, are are good and profitable for it. So I, I found a, a nice website that that outlined eight steps to go through to this. First of all, find out if you're eligible. So um, there's lots. Some people are eligible. Some people aren't. I don't know all those rules, but figure out if you are. And, and if you are, step two, complete an application, collect the necessary documents. Step three, get photographed. Step four, send your application documents and fee to the service center. Get fingerprinted, step five. Step six, be interviewed. Step seven, receive a decision. Step eight, take an oath to become a citizen. Those are the eight steps. I'm sure there's a lot convoluted there. But basically it says this. Okay, I want to become a citizen. Can I become a citizen? Okay, let's, let's take a photo. Let's get fingerprinted. Let's uh, whatever, pay, pay the fees. Let me get my interview. Let me see if I understand the English and understand the history and how our government works and all that. And if I am accepted, finally take the oath. Here's the oath that every immigrant who becomes a uh, citizen takes. I don't know what they do. Right? Hand on the Bible, hand up, hand on the heart. I, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure. I have no idea what that word means. Abjure all, I, I know what it means like renounce this time, but whatever. Abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bring, bear true faith and allegiance to the same that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States of America when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant services in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of, natural, of national importance under civilian direction when required by law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. That's how people, immigrants, come to be Citizens of our country. And isn't it just the same of what happens when we become citizens of heaven as well? You renounce your former life where you lived utterly. You willingly place yourself under the rule of God. I mean, He's the one who rules and reigns in heaven. He's the sovereign, holy, omnipotent one. So we say, I'm going to bow to Him and His will. You gladly uphold His Word, the Bible, believing and following is the truth of your life. You're ready and willing to fight for the kingdom in whatever way the Lord calls you to fight. And you'll work for the building up of the kingdom and not for the destroying of the, the country. So I ask you have, you, have you signed up? Have you, have you placed yourself in willing submission to the, the God of the universe? Because you need to be a kingdom of heaven by immigration. Are you walking His ways? Are you coming by the path that He, he calls us to? Isn't that the idea of the Philippians? They're a Roman colony, but their citizenship is in Rome. Their loyalty is to Rome. They will gladly bow to Caesar. And they would seek to expand the Roman Empire. Whatever realm they had. Here in Philippians 3, it's been exhaustive. We've been looking at the Gospel. 
I mean, the whole book of Philippians, like right, right there, it's right rejoice in the gospel. It's all what Philippians is about. But in chapter 3 particularly, we see the gospel. And, and, and the ways of, of those who trust it are clear, right? Chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. We are worshipers of God in heaven. We are, are glorying in Christ who gets us there, brings us there, is our mediator. And we put no confidence in our flesh. And, and he outlines that of how he didn't put confidence in flesh and how those things are counted as lost. But what is gained to him? Verse 9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Right? That's, that's how we get in. On the basis of faith, he gives us a righteousness and then he ends lets us into heaven. How the royal, loyal subjects of God's kingdom live, not trusting in our own works, but trusting in the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Have you signed up? Are you in? And are you fighting? And one of the things that really struck me in this, this whole pledge is that I, I will bear arms on behalf of the United States if the law requires me. And I will, will help in whatever way to support a government in national defense or whatever, are you in the military of God's kingdom? Can you say, I'm in the Lord's army? I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Right? I'm in the Lord's army. Okay, come again. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Now, the Lord's army is different than, than uh, the army of the United States, right? But, but are you fighting for it? Do you pray like Jesus taught us to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you praying, are you longing for God's kingdom to come here upon the earth? Are you fighting for His battles? Are you fighting with His weapons of war? Jesus said, though, my, king, my kingdom is not of this world. Our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers of this present darkness. Meaning that, that the weapons that we fight are, are weapons of prayer and spiritual warfare and trusting in the Lord. Uh, there's a hymn that says, um, though not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, your heavenly kingdom comes. That's how we fight. Say family is a great way to do that. Deeds of love and mercy is when the heavenly kingdom comes. We want to see the kingdom of God come to earth in great ways because that's where citizenship is. We want to see it come down. So, is that your citizenship? Is that where it is? Are you, you setting your mind on the things above? Or are you thinking about the things of earth? You know, I have a friend who's into all things earthly. He loves his toys. He loves his bank accounts. He loves his security. He loves his pleasures. And, and my friend is really concerned about where our country is headed. How we are, are going downhill. And he sees our country just, just crash diving. And, and I, I believe he's got some legitimate concerns, whether it's the national debt or whether it's the national immorality that is being spread like wildfire or whether it's the increasingly secularization of our, of our country where God is systematically being removed from our society, statue and plaque and picture at a time. Just wherever there's God, well, let's fight against that one. Okay, we got that one removed. Where's this Ten Commandments? Well, we got that one. Let's get this one removed. Where's that statement? Let's... And they're systematically just tearing away, taking all references of God out of the public arena. Or whether it's in the curriculum, 
where people today aren't even being taught about Jesus. They, people don't even know who Jesus They haven't even heard of Jesus. Or whether it's oaths that are made, whether it's public prayers, it's all going away. So my, my, my friend is really concerned about these things. I mean, I mean really concerned. He, he sees how the nation is crumbling and he so wants our nation to do better because he's a loyal American. Love the Reagan years. And it so wants us to restore it back to a strong America, a prosperous America, that we can succeed. And, and here's, here's the interesting thing. As, as I've dealt with him and talked with him on various matters, I've agreed much of what he said. He, he, he thinks about it much more than I do. So he's a lot smarter. He's got all the data on his side. I don't have it on my side. But it seems reasonable what, he, what he's saying. And I agree with him. I think it's terrible, awful, and I wish it wasn't happening. And I will do my part as an American citizen to see things turn around and help, help that. But, but my response has always been the same. I said, well, you know what? When bad times come on the society, it's good for the church. And when things are difficult, the church flourishes. It says, it's not that I wish these things to come upon our society, but I'm not worried because God's kingdom will do just fine. That's what I, I, I say. And, and typically I say that. And the reason why the church flourishes when the society does well is because, when society does poorly is because it kind of it kind of weeds out who's going to really make a stand for Christ. And when society is against it, who's just going to go the flow of society? How many politicians have changed their views in the last 10 years as the, as the views of society have gone adrift? Well, they just, they just drift with society. But it takes some work when the society drifts to stand different, to stand on God's Word. And it purifies the church. And that's always been my, my answer. And it's interesting that I've tried to... In studying this text, it really, really struck me, first of all, his citizenship is on earth. He's all concerned about proper prosperity of, of, of our nation. And I'm not so concerned about that. I have another citizenship, a citizenship in heaven. And I, I, I just really this week I was thinking, I wonder how he thinks about my statements about... Like, why are you talking about the church, Steve? Like, we're talking about America, right? We're talking about a prosperity. And you talk about the church? And it really struck me today, uh, this, this, this week, just like, you know, I, that's just naturally been my response because when the church flourishes, that's where I rejoice. And I'm more concerned about the church. I'm more concerned about heavenly kingdom than I am about earthly kingdom. I cheer when the kingdom of heaven flourishes. And in many ways, I think I have a healthy ambivalence to the kingdom upon earth. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I will fight. I will do what I can. I will try to seek to vote rightly. I will do, I'll do what I can. I'll, I'll use whatever influence I have on you all. to let's, let's vote right. Let's do what we can. But ultimately, that's going to be a minor key to the kingdom of heaven. So is that your hope? Is that your perspective in heaven or is it upon earth? Well, it all has to do with where your home is because if your home's in heaven, that will be your perspective. If your home is here upon earth, that won't be your perspective. Well, that is my leads nicely to my second point. Our, our home is in heaven. Second point, our hope is in Christ. That's last part of verse 20 and all through 21. Let me just read it for you now. For our citizenship is in heaven... From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. We're waiting for our Savior to come. 
The Bible says that when Jesus made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty on high, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Quoting from Psalm 110. And when His enemies are conquered, Jesus will surely return. And in verse 20 it says this, is that we eagerly wait for that time. We are waiting eagerly for that day. And, and so notice verse 20, how it describes Jesus. What words it use there, Jesus? We eagerly wait for a Savior. So I'm thinking about citizenship. I'm thinking about war. Thinking about warfare. Thinking about Savior. And the illustration that came to my mind was a, a prisoner of war. You went to war. And you're captured. And now you're behind enemy lines in a POW camp. There are rules and regulations you need to follow. Right? And you're submitting to them because you have no choice. And yet with any opportunity you have, you're still fighting for your own country. Right? Whether that's leaving a tack on the floor so that your commander will maybe step on it. or so. Whatever limited, you're still kind of, kind of fighting. You may be disarmed. You may be on minimal rations. You may be under tight surveillance. But anything you can do, maybe it's just even keeping up the morale of your fellow POWs. You're, you're, you're just there. And, and what are you doing? What, what fills your days? At POW camps, mostly it's pretty dull and boring, I, I think, as you sit there, wait to starve to death or, or long for your next minimal meal or whatever. But I, I think that while you're there, you're longing, first of all, I think, for news. Are we winning? Is the end of the war come? A new batch of prisoners come, and what are you going to do? You're going to ask them, ask them, how's this, how are things going? How's this? You know, because they know more because they were captured two months later than you were, or a year later than you were, so they know a lot more information. So you're trying to figure out, how's it going? And then you're longing for the war to end. You're longing for victory and you're longing for the time when your government will come to what? To rescue you. You're longing for the time that you can just go home and be with your family, right? You've you got this heartache because my, my wife and my children are at home and I'm, I'm here in this difficult circumstance. And I, the parallels are exactly the same. Our home is in heaven. Our hope is in Christ, our Savior, we're here upon earth fighting God's kingdom, but we're waiting for the return of our Savior who's going to rescue us out of the trial that we're in. Uh, the New American Standard does get it right when it does say that we are eagerly awaiting for our Savior. That is, we believe He's coming, we believe He's coming soon, and like children anticipating Christmas, it can't come soon enough. We are just waiting. John says at the end of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus affirms, Yes, I am coming quickly. The hope of all believers in Christ. Titus 2.13 describes it. The blessed hope. Right? The appearing of our Lord and Savior. Of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the blessed hope because it brings blessing to many of hope that way. The hope that Christ will come and, and will rescue us from behind enemy lines. He will be, if you will, if you will our Savior. But, but there's more than simply waiting though in this word. There's also expectation. Op ex decomai. There's, there's this... Um, there's this expectation that I, I'm just not waiting for someday maybe. I am waiting, anticipating, because just as Christmas comes, it will come. But I want it to come sooner than it ever may come. It's the hope of every prisoner of war that our side win. We expect our side to win. In fact, we expect Jesus will win. And what differentiates us from a, a prisoner of war is a prisoner of war doesn't really know how the war is going to end. But we know how the war is going to end. The promise of Psalm 110. 
His enemies will be made a footstool for your feet. The Lord will send Him forth saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations and He will fill them with corpses. And if you think my language is too strong there for what Jesus said, that is the very language used in Psalm 110. Speaking about the final rule, the final return of our Lord. He's going to rule. He's going to shatter kings. He's going to judge. He's going to spread them out like corpses. Eagerly awaiting our Savior. The prophecy is promised. Jesus will reign. Right? The month of March. In like a lion. In like a lion. Out like a lamb. Jesus is just reversed, right? He came like a lamb. He's going to come out like a lion. So what happens when Jesus returns? Well, that answers question's answered in verse 21. Here it is. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In other words, our bodies are going to get an overhaul. Now, for those of you growing older like me, turned 47 yesterday, right? Um, I, could, I could use an overhaul. The older I get, our bodies right now are in a humble state. Or as many translations say, they're in a lowly state. They're, they're low because they're weak. They're low because they're victims of the fall. As a result, we grow old and die. They're lowly because we're subject to sickness, subject to ugliness. Our bodies are lowly because they are sinful. But when Christ comes, you're going to reverse all of that. Our weakness will become strength. We won't die. We won't experience sickness. Our body of sin will be done away with. That's why John said in Revelation 21, when the loud voice comes from heaven, and John's just recording what he sees and hears, he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. That's talking about the citizens of heaven come and unite with their mayor, if you will. Right, come and unite with their king, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, nor will there be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. When Christ returns, you're going to do away with all the bad. But also when our bodies are transformed, he's going to change it for the good. Look again at verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In other words, our, our bodies will become like the body of Jesus. That's what it says. I mean, you can't get away from it. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So, what Jesus is like now in glory, we will be like that in some degree. When Paul speaks in Romans chapter 8 about our salvation, he says this, For whom He foreknew, these He also predestined. How, what did He call us to? What did He predestine us to? To be conformed into the image of His Son. So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, so that, that we would be like Jesus, so He would be like us. But He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. But we, we come to share in that. That's what verse 21 is talking about. In Romans 8, it talks about our ultimate destiny. Ultimate for any of us to be like Christ is to be like Him. But in Philippians 3, he talks about when that takes place is, is when Christ comes back. 
And it talks about a little bit like what exactly it's like. He's talking about our bodies being conformed to the Son who has a bodily component. You remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, He was, he was raised with a resurrection body. In other words, our body will be like the body of Jesus. We will have heavenly bodies. And that doesn't stir your heart and mind to say, come Lord Jesus, to have a heavenly body. I don't know what, what will. There's lots of speculation as to exactly what that's going to look like. Right? What, what will we look like? How, right? what, how, how old will we be? Maybe we'll be 47. That, that's a good age. I don't know. What abilities will we have? Will all our senses work? Will we have new senses? What ways are we perfect? Will there still be male and female? Although Jesus said there's not marriage, but there's still male and female. How much resemblance of earthly bodies will there be? And, and, and there's some well thought out answers to these questions. I refer you again to, to Randy Alcorn's book on marriage, chapter 29. You can read about it there. But rather than trying to speculate here this morning, let's just, let's, just, let's just stay within Paul's language. 1 Corinthians 15, here's how he describes it. He says this. He says, There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So just talking about our bodies going to be glorified. And so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We will have a body. Don't think we're going to just be floating spirits out there. We're going to have a body. We're going to be recognizable. Remember when uh, Moses and Elijah came back, they were recognizable. They had bodies. We will have bodies. But our heavenly bodies, and I just, again, Paul, Paul says they will be imperishable. That is, they will never die. Maybe they won't ever, they won't ever hurt, right? Because there's no more pain in heaven anymore. They maybe won't cut. Maybe we've got Teflon skin or something. I'm not sure. But it's imperishable. It doesn't, doesn't die. It is glorious, right? Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Basically, everything our earthly bodies not. <laughs> our heavenly bodies will be in glory. There'll be power. We won't know weakness. Maybe exercise will not be so that your heart works better. It'll be for the pure joy of throwing a ball into a hoop. I don't know. And they will be spiritual. That is, they will no longer sin. And those are the attributes that he Paul raised in 1 Corinthians 15. Imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. I just leave it to you right there. And I say this though. Do you long for that day? Do you long for that day? Are you eagerly awaiting that day? Because Paul says this, that we are citizenships in heaven and we earnestly wait, we long, we expect for the day when Christ will come and change us to bring us fully into our, the home of our citizenship. In the midst of Paul's struggle with ongoing sin, he cried out in Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall separate me from the body of this death? Well, Christ Jesus will when He returns for His church in glory. 
Now, when you start thinking about these things, other questions come into mind. What about those who have died? What about those who have rotted in the tomb? What about those who are buried at sea? How will their bodies be restored? Is it, are the, the molecules coming back? Or how's all that going to happen? What about those who are old when Christ returns? Is, is age going to reverse itself? What about those who are very young when Christ returns? Will age like speed up? Or how, how, is, how is that all going to work? Well, we don't know. But verse 21 answers all our doubts. Because verse 21 says this. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. In other words, what he's saying is all things are possible with God. That's what he's saying. All things are possible with God. Let's just let Jesus figure it out. If he can subject the whole universe to himself, if every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ, let us let Jesus figure out. I just say, just hope. Place your hope in Jesus. Set your mind on heavenly things because our home is in heaven and our hope is in Christ. Well, as we transition once again to the Lord's Supper, there's a curious phrase in 1 Corinthians 11. You can turn over there. When, when Paul speaks about the, the Lord's Supper, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So as we eat this bread and drink this cup together, and again, if you're a believer trusting in Christ, setting your hope in Jesus, boy, celebrate this supper with us. If that's not where your hope is, that's not where your citizenship is, just let the cup, bread and cup pass. This is for believers. This is for those who say, yes, my home is in heaven and my hope is in Christ. But if your home is here upon earth, your hope is in something else, just let it, let it pass because if you eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But implied in these words, verse 26, as often as you drink it, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There, there's this implication about we're doing this, we're eating and we're drinking until Jesus comes. Something's going to change at that point. Jesus changed the whole Passover meal, that last supper. And maybe it's going to change because we're doing this. We're proclaiming His death until, until He comes. Maybe it's because we'll see Him. We won't need a reminder. I don't know. Well, let's pray and we'll celebrate the supper together. Father, I, I would pray that You would place our heart in heaven. So much so that that would be our home. That we would love to read of heaven. That we would love to, to worship. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, who was and is and is to come. That we might say, worthy are You, O Lord, to receive, to take the book and to take its seals because You were slain. And to God and to the Lamb be glory and honor and blessing. God, may we love the angelic heavenly praise. And Lord, I would pray as we, though, are not glorified today, as we are not exalted, but we are in, as Paul calls here, the, the lowly state, the humiliated state. Lord, I would pray that we would, um, God, remember Christ. It's the only place that our hope can be found. God, help us to see our sin and confess it, repent of it, turn from it. God, I know the struggle that sin is. I would pray that You would help us to overcome.
But may our sin draw us to Christ and show us continually of our need for Him. And may we cry out, Oh, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. And Lord, so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, God, be with us. Commune with us. God, help us to see You more clearly as we remember You. The body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.